What's happening in the world right now? Coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Humanitarian parole for migrants. It's unclear how many people receive this status. A researcher accuses the Department of Homeland Security of withholding information. Presidential candidate Tim Scott takes issue with comments some TV hosts made about systemic racism. He went on the show to present his view of things. COVID vaccine passports are making a comeback. The World Health Organization says it will adopt the European Union's digital passports framework as the basis for new digital health certificates. How will Robert F. Kennedy Jr. shake up the Democratic presidential primary? And what are some of his stances that are appealing to some conservatives and independents? We bring you analysis. Thousands of people in Ukraine lost their homes to flooding after a major dam in the war zone was blown up. The UN calls it a monumental catastrophe. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news centers on how many migrants are entering the country. Homeland Security data show over 800,000 appointments for humanitarian parole are granted each year. However, critics say the number of people who actually enter the country under the system is unknown and that the department is withholding the real numbers. Here are the details. The United States grants so-called humanitarian parole to migrants by using two separate programs. The first is the CBP-1 app. It allows migrants to schedule an appointment to present themselves at southwest border land ports of entry. In April of last year, Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, expanded use of the app. Homeland Security told the Epic Times that as of June 1st, the department increased CBP-1 appointments from 1,000 to 1,250 a day. This amounts to over 37,000 appointments per month. However, it's unclear how many people are included in such appointments. For example, is it whole families, married couples, or single migrants? So the actual number of people entering on humanitarian grounds could be much higher. Humanitarian parole allows people to temporarily enter the U.S. if there is a compelling emergency and there is an urgent humanitarian reason or significant public benefit. In addition, 30,000 humanitarian parole cases a month are already allowed under a program specifically for Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans, known as CHNV. If only one person per appointment is admitted to the U.S. under both processes, this brings the total number to more than 800,000 per year. Homeland Security told the Epic Times that the recent increase in appointments is a continuation of the Biden administration's expansion of lawful pathways and opportunities to access them, including CBP-1 appointments. The agency says the process cuts out smugglers and provides a safe process for non-citizens to access ports of entry. However, Todd Benzman, a senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, says he has been stonewalled by Homeland Security in his quest for more accurate figures on CBP-1 entries. He also says Homeland Security ignored Freedom of Information Act requests from House Republicans and a letter sent to Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas seeking accurate numbers. Benzman says Mayorkas just blew them off. They never got them. The center has since sued CBP, demanding it comply with the law regarding the FOIA requests and give out accurate numbers regarding CBP-1 entries. NTD reached out to the Department of Homeland Security for comment. We'll keep you updated if we hear back. And we're taking you now from immigration to politics. Senator Tim Scott shared a hopeful message during a media appearance yesterday. The presidential candidate challenged claims of systemic racism in the U.S. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the senator's words. 
During a June 5th appearance on The View, Scott got into a heated exchange with co-host Sonny Hostin. The issue was past comments on the show about how a young African-American kid can be successful. That is a dangerous, offensive, disgusting message to send to our young people today that the only way to succeed is by being the exception. Scott says he grew up in a poor single-parent household attending four different schools by the fourth grade and failed four subjects as a freshman in high school. The senator says America can do for anyone what it has done for him. He then cited examples of African-American progress. We've had an African-American president, African-American uh, vice president. We've had two African-Americans to be secretaries of the state. Scott added that the police chief in his home city is African-American and is currently running for mayor and said the head of the South Carolina Highway Patrol is also African-American. The senator says seeing African-American progress is as simple as flipping through the TV stations. ABC, NBC, CBS, ESPN, CNN, Fox News all have African-American and Hispanic hosts. According to Scott, the improvements in America are unmistakable and can be measured in generations. He brought up his grandfather, born in South Carolina in 1921, who had to get off the sidewalk and avert eye contact if a white person was coming. But Scott says his grandfather believed in the goodness of America. Because he believed that having faith in God, mm -hmm. faith in himself, and faith in what the future could hold for his kids, would unleash opportunities in ways that you, you cannot imagine. The senator says yesterday's exception is today's rule and that the concept of America is to become a more perfect union. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former Vice President Mike Pence is officially running for president, filing the paperwork yesterday. Tomorrow, he's holding an event where he's expected to make the announcement. This comes after he and all other Republican presidential candidates campaigned in Iowa recently. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is picking up steam. After holding a Twitter space with Elon Musk, many conservatives and independents are taking an interest in his positions and proposed policies. I spoke to one of them. Joining me now is Jenna Ellis, former senior advisor and counsel to President Donald Trump and constitutional attorney. Jenna, thanks for making the time today. Thanks so much, Kevin. Great to see you. What do you find most appealing about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s platform? Yeah, well, I was in the Twitter space with him and Elon Musk yesterday for two hours. And what I found most appealing about him is that he is reasonable and he comes from a principled constitutional perspective that acknowledges that our rights are protected by the Constitution. And we have to have solutions as Americans moving forward that is really more principled and country above party. And so as a conservative myself, um, I don't like when we just get siloed into Republican good, Democrat bad, and not being willing to look at the fundamental principles of the U.S. Constitution and what it actually means to be Americans in 2023 and have collaborative solutions. So I thought that with him answering a lot of questions from the audience, even on things like uh, gun rights, the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, all of those things he approached uh, with really well thought out positions and uh, genuinely uh, was someone that I came away very much respecting after that conversation. Well, we know RFK Jr. is definitely an anti-vaccine vac activist, and also he is very anti-censorship. Now, it, he has put out the perspective that the United States should consider the Ukraine war from the Russians' point of view. This is an unprovoked invasion. What's your re reaction to this, Jenna? 
Well, he had a really interesting uh, discussion about the Ukraine-Russia war, and I thought that it was very principled as well to say that, you know, this isn't something that America needs to be a part of. And he doesn't think that Ukraine will ultimately win this war. And Elon Musk also stepped in and said, you know, they're sending their youth of uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, to die in the trenches. And I think that this conversation was so important because largely Americans on both sides, uh, both in the Republican and the Democrat Party leadership, have just uh, supported Ukraine. Ukraine from a position that I don't think that all Americans uh, really want to see the United States participating in. So to see RFK Jr. actually have a standpoint that was contrary to both parties, I think was very refreshing. And I would like to see more of the candidates on the Republican side actually take a very strong position on this and ask the question, why does America need to be involved? I don't think we do. And zooming out here, Jenna, can you give us a breakdown of the main platforms that the GOP and Democratic presidential candidates have? Yeah, so, um, you know, of course, the Democrats are not even having uh, primary debates, and that was a great thing about the space with Elon Musk is that it platformed RFK Jr. And, uh, you know, he seems to be more of a classical liberal and more of, you know, his own uh, family era of the Democrat policies. And that is a very sharp contrast to the extremists of uh, the Joe Biden type of Democrats that we've seen through the Obama administration and now into the Biden administration. And so I think that is going to be a sharp divide among the very disaffected Democrats, the moderates and independents that like someone like an RFK Jr. And if he's still polling at, you know, even uh, 20% and potentially could have a run as an independent, then that's really going to shake up the Democrat side. On the Republican side, uh, you have this contrast between the America first, uh, truly conservative uh, candidates like President Trump and Governor DeSantis, even though they're kind of warring at each other. I really don't like how President Trump has attacked Governor DeSantis because he's been the great uh, conservative Republican governor uh, in the country. And they are really uh, have the same policy perspectives overall. And I think either would be a really great candidate uh, to lead this country and uh, to get into office. And that is a very sharp contrast between some of the other uh, more traditional establishment Republicans that I think the base is really rejecting people like uh, the Nikki Haley. Um, Mike Pence, who's now jumped in, who's more of a globalist um, establishment figure, who's actually gone against religious liberty in uh, his home state of Indiana when he was governor. So I think that there's a widening field of GOP candidates that will prove very interesting. But really, it's going to come down between President Trump and Governor DeSantis. And Governor DeSantis has recently, especially in Iowa, uh, really taken a lead in the polls in terms of um, actually coming up to where President Trump is. And I think that we're gonna see that continue to bolster as he gets his message across on the campaign trail. Very detailed analysis. Constitutional Attorney General Ellis, it's always great to have you. Thanks so much. And as the presidential race picks up, we wanna turn your attention now to public health. The World Health Organization said it will use the framework of the European Union's COVID-19 vaccine passports for new global digital health certificates. Critics have raised concerns over privacy and discrimination. The World Health Organization said on Monday it's joining forces with the European Union, entering what it called a landmark digital health partnership. As part of this new joint venture, the WHO will make use of the EU's framework of digital vaccine passports to build a global network of digital health products. The EU's COVID-19 vaccine passport entered into force in July 2021 with over 2 billion certificates issued. 
The WHO sees potential in the bloc's passport framework for additional use cases beyond COVID. Dubbed the Global Digital Health Certification Network, the new vaccine passport framework has been condemned as an invasion of privacy, paving the way for intrusive health-based surveillance. Critics have also denounced the vaccine passports as discriminatory, as they can facilitate denial of access to public services to the unvaccinated. Member of the European Parliament, Rob Roos, calls the partnership a worrying development. He wrote on Twitter that WHO is not a government institution. WHO is 80% funded by oligarchs and Big Pharma. Coming up next, Apple announces a mixed reality headset. The device allows users to control various apps with just their eyes and hand gestures. The IRS issues a scam alert. It's telling employers not to fall for aggressive marketing. We'll have more for you in just a moment right here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. We bring you an update on the whistleblower document that alleges President Biden was part of a criminal scheme during his time as vice president. The FBI has not handed over the document, and Republicans are moving forward with proceedings to hold Director Ray in contempt of Congress. Let's get some insight into this. We're joined by Mark Ruskin, retired FBI special agent and former district attorney in Brooklyn. Mark, it's always great to have you with us. It's always great to be here, Kevin. Director Ray let Chairman Comer view the document in a reading room at the Capitol, but he wouldn't release it to the committee. The FBI says this is to protect the physical safety of sources and the integrity of investigations. What's your reaction to this? Well, you know, as long as ground rules are set up and if all the committee members were to agree not to release any information which puts into jeopardy any uh, sources or methods, then that, uh, and, and as long as the document is not classified, which it is not classified, then all those uh, arguments against uh, showing them uh, evaporate. So why do you think they would make this argument? I suspect that the Bureau of Management is essentially trying to minimize the uh, access to the document in order to try and keep some kind of control over the information that it contains. I, I, I think it's a, probably a, a lost cause. I think ultimately, the harder they try to suppress the contents, the more interest there is and the more people ask, what, why is it really being suppressed? And the ranking member in the Oversight Committee, Jamie Raskin, he said the document is based on allegations that went nowhere, but Comer confirmed that Ray said that this is not the case when they met. But Raskin says that A.G. Barr terminated the investigation. How do we make sense of all this? Well, if that's the way Raskin feels, why would he oppose uh, release of the contents? If he thinks it's all uh, nonsense, then he should be all for uh, the light of day. I mean, uh, sunshine is the, uh, is the best disinfectant, as Brandeis, uh, Justice Brandeis said. So why would he want not to have it released if, that's, if what he's saying is actually true? And if these are allegations that did go nowhere, like Raskin is alleging, then wouldn't bringing them to light just add more spin on the political turmoil? And since the FBI won't hand over the document, according to Comer, they're going to initiate contempt proceedings. So what do you expect to happen next? Well, 
you know, it's 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 going to be a historic uh, moment now because uh, there's never been such a confrontation before. The head of the FBI with the head uh, chairman of important congressional committees. Now, Ray's attorneys, the attorneys in the FBI, who now, since the times of Mueller and Comey, are no longer always FBI agents who become who are attorneys and rise up, but are actually just simply attorneys hired from the outside who don't have the same culture, you know, are giving him different advice that he may have gotten in the past. The you know I'll I'll point out that the Ray may be looking at it thinking what Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder a few years ago disregarded a subpoena from Congress and there were no consequences. So perhaps uh, the FBI attorneys or the Ray's attorneys are saying, look, you can act uh, in contempt of Congress and there won't be any consequences. So uh, so why not? You know, at one point it looked like he was going to release it and now it looks like he's backtracked. Perhaps he feels he can get away with it. Very interesting insight into the implications of the culture surrounding the Bureau. Mark Ruskin, retired FBI special agent, it's always great to hear from you. It's always great to be here, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Republican Congresswoman Anna Luna yesterday suggested another factor in the FBI's reluctance. She said the Bureau was afraid their confidential informant would be killed if the identity is revealed. President Biden has left three important positions of government oversight unfilled. Members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, want to know why. The three positions are the Inspectors General for the Treasury and State, as well as the U.S. Agency for International Development. Republican Congressman James Comer, the chair of the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, wants to know why President Biden hasn't appointed anyone. He told Biden in a letter that the inspectors are essential to safeguarding taxpayer funds and shining the light on waste, fraud, and abuse. Democrat Senator Maggie Hassan is also wondering why the three highly visible watchdog jobs are vacant as Biden is in his third year in the Oval Office. Hassan chairs a Senate subcommittee on investigations. Inspectors general are also missing at a variety of smaller programs the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the National Security Agency, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp. Turning to tech news, Apple now has a virtual reality headset that you can use to go online, watch movies, and make video calls. The company announced Vision Pro yesterday. NTD's Andrew Thomas tells us how the tech world is reacting. Apple unveiled a mixed reality headset that will bridge the virtual world and the real world. After years of speculation, Apple CEO Tim Cook hailed the arrival of the Vision Pro goggles. It's the first Apple product you look through and not at. Vision Pro feels familiar, yet it's entirely new. You can see, hear, and interact with digital content just like it's in your physical space. Apple said the Vision Pro will retail for about $3,500 early next year. The device will initially only be available in the U.S. But at this price point, with a technology that's still, you know, developing, I still think this category is a couple years off, but it's important that they get this in the hands of developers. The headset will allow users to control various apps with just their eyes and hand gestures. And you control Vision Pro using the most natural and intuitive tools, your eyes, hands, and voice. With Vision Pro, you're no longer limited by a display. 
Your surroundings become an infinite canvas. Apple said the experience won't cause the recurring nausea and headaches that similar devices have in the past. Vision Pro won't require physical controllers, but the goggles will have to be plugged into a power outlet or a portable battery connected to the headset. I thought it was kind of goofy looking. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a hard sell for Apple. Um, the expectations were sort of split. Some people thought it was going to be a huge revolutionary launch and some people thought it was going to be underwhelming. It was kind of both. Vision Pro could turn out to be a niche product. If so, it would leave Apple in the same bind as other major tech companies and startups. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Other than the VR headset, what was the reaction to some of the other products and features that Apple announced yesterday? Here's Don Ma with NTD Business. Thanks, Kevin. At Apple's annual Worldwide Developers Conference, a long list of new features and products were announced, including new Macs and, of course, its new augmented reality headset. So here to talk to me is Burton Kelso, expert on everything tech. So the Apple conference that we had yesterday, a, a lot of people highly anticipating that. Um, in comparison to before, how, how do you think this one went? How, what are your feelings about it? I think this one kind of went flat because people had higher expectations as far as the products and software updates that Apple was going to offer. I mean, you saw some key things like the ability to leave video messages with um, FaceTime. But then as far as their VR goggles, I think it went flat, especially with the high price of $3,500 for a set of VR headsets where you have other ones on the market that are considerably lower. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that, but first uh, let me ask you something about the MacBook Air, the 15-inch one that was announced yesterday. I mean, alongside all of the features that's iconic with the MacBook Air, I think one of the biggest features for me personally, at least, is the price tag. It used to be at $999, right? Now this new version that's being launched is over $1,000. I think it's uh, 1199 somewhere around that. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, for students, the 999 market is really key here. I think the I think people are willing to pay a little bit more for a larger MacBook Air. I mean, the 15-inch screen has got high definition, and I think for years people have wanted a 15-inch MacBook Air uh, as opposed to the 13-inch because you're seeing more people working mobile and if you're able to offer a 15-inch lightweight laptop, people are going to embrace it no matter if there's a slight price increase or not. So alongside the new products that were announced, uh, a new software update, iOS 17, was announced. What are your thoughts on that? It, um, it's, it, it's almost like I'm speechless about it because you know, and every time there's a new iOS update that comes out, there's like features that are included for your iPhone that are just revolutionary. But now it's like they added stuff that they forgot to put in the iOS 16 and it's just filler. So as for the augmented reality headset, Tim Cook uh, unveiled this in the format of one more thing. I mean, I think that's a bit interesting, but did it live up to the one more thing type of uh, format? No, because it's one more year that we have to wait for the augmented uh, reality headset to come out. And unfortunately, it was supposed to be released last September. So, you know, there's more of a delay 
for the augmented reality headset and it doesn't really add anything um, to the picture and I think a lot of people were think hoping that the augmented reality headset would entice more people to get into the metaverse but the high price tag is going to stop people unless this is kind of somewhat of a beta to test it out in the real world and then release a uh, more cost-effective um, version but again there's nothing that's really tying people to get into the metaverse and that was the big hope with the uh, augmented reality headset you know there's this uh, notion that when apple does something it's more likely to catch on do you think this could be the case with augmented reality i don't think so no i think uh, maybe the ship has sailed for the metaverse and all things meta maybe for a select few of people that can uh, purchase the augmented reality headset from Apple, and maybe they have an Oculus. But, uh, you know, if it would have been released last year, I would say yes, that would have enticed more people to get involved. But no one's really talking about the metaverse now. So it's like, you know, too, just a little too late to catch the boat as far as getting people involved in the metaverse and virtual reality. Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people might agree with you, but thank you so much for speaking with me today, Burton. Always great to see you. All right, it's good to see you too, Don. Thank you. Apple CEO Tim Cook says that augmented reality can unlock experiences like nothing we've ever seen before. He says that in the same way that the Mac introduced us to personal computing and the iPhone introduced us to mobile computing, Apple Vision Pro will introduce us to spatial computing. Back to you, Kevin. All right. And in other news, the IRS has sent another alert warning employers and other taxpayers of a possible scam. It involves misleading claims about the Employee Retention Credit, or ERC. The ERC is a refundable tax credit for businesses that paid employees while they were shut down during COVID-19 lockdowns. The IRS said it continues to see aggressive advertising and online promotions involving the ERC. The agency says while the credit is real, aggressive promoters are wildly misrepresenting who can qualify for it. The IRS said it will step up its auditing of those employee-related claims. It warned that taxpayers who improperly try to obtain the credit could face follow-up action from the tax agency and that it has boosted its staffing around the issue. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs faces criticism for vetoing a bill that would have protected minors from sexually explicit materials. It also would have made it illegal to film pornography at public schools. A state senator introduced the bill after two teachers were fired. Students and parents found pornographic material that the pair filmed in one of their classrooms and posted online. State Senator Jake Hoffman said after the veto that no 12-year-old child should ever have to worry that their middle school desk was the location of a porn shoot. In her veto letter, Hobbs described the bill as a thinly-veiled effort to ban books. In other state news, the Pennsylvania legislature isn't getting much done. Since the start of this session in January, the 253 full-time elected members have passed just one non-controversial bill. That one bill is a measure requiring insurance companies to provide screenings for breast cancer. State Representative Brad Roy says most bills brought up are a waste of time. He said lawmakers are bogged down in committees passing legislation that the House passes and the Senate won't consider. He also said the Senate is probably doing the same thing. The Pennsylvania State Senate is controlled by Republicans, while the House is controlled by Democrats. 
The U.S. Postal Service has revealed the state, states with the most dog attacks on mail carriers. Over 5,300 mail carriers were attacked by canines in 2022. California took first place with 675 dog bites. Texas came in second place. New York and Pennsylvania took third and fourth places. The Postal Service says that most of the attacks occur from dogs considered nice by their owners, and the dog might not have acted in an aggressive way before. This week is National Dog Bite Awareness Week. The Postal Service asks owners to keep their dog secured when the mail carrier arrives. And coming up, the UK is urged to stop sharing sensitive financial details with the Chinese regime. The personal information is from Hong Kong dissidents living in Britain. And the U.S. is holding a first-of-its-kind maritime drill. It's a three-way exercise with Japan and the Philippines. We'll have those details for you when we come back. Welcome back. The White House decried Beijing's recent provocations both at sea and in the air. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby called the incidents unacceptable. Sadly, Ed, these are uh, part and parcel of uh, an increasing level of aggressiveness by uh, the PLA, the PRC's military, uh, in particularly in the area of the Taiwan Straits and in the South China Sea. Lee, this is just part uh, again of a growing aggressiveness by the PRC that we're that we're dealing with, and we're prepared to address. A Chinese warship intercepted a U.S. destroyer on Saturday in the Taiwan Strait. That was just days after a similar encounter between U.S. and Chinese military planes over the South China Sea. In both cases, the Chinese vehicle cut in close to the front of the U.S. vehicle, attempting to force it into changing course. Kirby called the intercepts unjustified and unprofessional. He noted Washington was operating under international law and was in international territory during both incidents. Also in the South China Sea, a massive maritime exercise is underway. The U.S., Japan, and the Philippines are holding their first-ever joint Coast Guard drills. The drills are near the Philippine province of Bataan. More than 500 Coast Guard personnel in total are participating from the three countries. The training includes counter-piracy simulations as well as an interception exercise involving a vessel carrying weapons of mass destruction. The whole engagement is set to last one week. The purpose of this maritime drill is to increase the interoperability between the Philippines, the U.S., and the Japan Coast Guard. So all the exercises we do, we help one another to prepare for anything that may possibly happen in the future. The trilateral exercise comes amid heightened Chinese aggression in disputed waters. The U.S., Japan, and Australia have condemned China's militarization in the South China Sea and sought to engage more closely with the Philippines. Moving to the U.K., tax authorities are providing the Chinese regime with data about Chinese and Hong Kong dissidents, part of an international anti-tax fraud agreement. But it's raised concerns the Chinese regime could use the sensitive information to put pressure on pro-democracy activists. The UK government is giving the personal information of Chinese and Hong Kong nationals living here in Britain to the Chinese regime. The data sharing is part of an international agreement to prevent tax fraud. But this revelation raises fears the Chinese regime will use the details to target activists escaping the Chinese Communist Party. Whether 
knowingly or unknowingly, the British government is able to share the sensitive tax information. This is addresses, bank account information, how much money they have, um, automatically with the Chinese regime. The tax agreement was launched in 2014, with China and Hong Kong joining the pact four years later. Over 160,000 Hong Kongers have come to the UK since 2021, and many other Chinese nationals have fled China over the past decades. Ku said it's possible for individuals to have their tax information redacted to stop it being shared. However, most of them are not even aware that they can do this because the instructions for doing so are hidden in a crevice on the UK government website. She added that the CCP actively tries to find sensitive information on people. It has set up secret police stations across the world, including here in the UK, to spy on those who have fled China. In 2021, a bounty worth over $10,000 was put on a pro-democracy activist from Hong Kong. So the tax data agreement raises serious safety concerns. Ku said it's not unheard of for the UK government to opt out of such pacts with autocratic regimes. The British government suspended similar tax agreements with Russia and Belarus to protect um, the Ukrainian citizens that were fleeing to Britain. So there's no reason that the same cannot be done um, with China and Hong Kong. She said people from China and Hong Kong deserve to feel safe here in the UK and added they should have easier access to information to allow their human rights to be protected. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Still to come, evacuations for thousands of people from flooded regions in southern Ukraine are now underway after a major dam was blown up. The U.S. Navy said armed Iranian speedboats harassed a merchant vessel sailing through the Strait of Hormuz. We'll have more for you shortly right here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. In Ukraine, a strategically important dam was destroyed, flooding dozens of settlements and affecting over 15,000 residents. Kyiv and Moscow blamed each other for blowing up the dam. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez called it a monumental humanitarian, economic and ecological catastrophe. A major dam on the Dnipro River that separates Russian and Ukrainian forces was badly damaged on Tuesday. Ukraine says about 80 towns and villages in southern Ukraine are now underwater, affecting tens of thousands of people. Authorities in the Kherson region have begun evacuating residents. President Zelensky told Eastern European leaders that Russian forces blew up the dam. It was mined by the Russian occupiers and they blew it up. And this once again demonstrates the cynicism with which Russia treats the people whose land it has captured and what Russia actually brings to Europe and the world. A Ukrainian military spokesperson said Moscow's aim was to prevent Ukrainian troops crossing the Dnipro River to attack Russian occupying forces. Some Russian-installed officials said the dam had burst on its own, while the Kremlin blamed Ukraine for destroying the barrier. Apparently, this act of sabotage appears to be linked to the fact that a large-scale offensive action launched by the Ukrainian military two days ago has failed to achieve its goals. The dam holds water similar to the Great Salt Lake in the United States. The reservoir supplies water to a swath of southern Ukraine's agricultural land, as well as cooling the Russian-held Zaporizhia nuclear plant. The UN nuclear watchdog said the plant should have enough water to cool its reactors for some months 
from a separate pond, even as the reservoir drains out. It called for the pond to be spared. Ukraine called Russia a terrorist state today at the UN's top court as hearings began in a case over Moscow's backing of pro-Russian separatists. The case is linked to Moscow's 2014 annexation of Crimea and the arming of rebels in eastern Ukraine in the years before Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022. Kyiv wants the International Court of Justice to order Moscow to pay reparations for attacks in the regions, including for the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. The flight was shot down by Russia-backed rebels in July 2014, killing nearly 300 passengers and crew. Both Kyiv and Moscow sent out legal teams with dozens of representatives. The case is one of several legal proceedings against Russia linked to Ukraine. Judges are expected to take months to issue a judgment. The U.S. Navy said that its sailors and Britain's Royal Navy came to the aid of a ship in the critical Strait of Hormuz on Sunday after three armed Iranian speedboats harassed it. The U.S. Navy released a black-and-white photo showing the three vessels believed to have been operated by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy, cruising alongside the unidentified merchant ship at a close distance. The U.S. Navy said a guided missile destroyer and a U.K. Royal Navy frigate responded to the merchant ship's distress call. After about an hour, the three attack boats broke off and left the area, and the merchant ship was able to continue through the strait. This latest encounter comes about a month after Iranian troops captured two merchant ships traveling near the narrow strait, a critical choke point for international commerce. And just ahead, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is taking shape again. The landmark won't be open for next summer's Olympics, but authorities have another special date planned, so stay tuned. Good to have you back with us. A grand anniversary of a French historical site. The Abbey of Mont-Saint-Michel marked 1,000 years since it became a sanctuary. The Abbey stands on a sacred site dedicated to Michael the Archangel. Its Gothic central building with its towering walls and soaring pinnacles wasn't built until the 13th century. It's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and one of the most visited monuments in France. More than two million people stop by each year. A millennium celebration is happening until November, featuring exhibitions, dance performances, and concerts. Rebuilt parts of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris are coming together after a fire in April 2019. Craftsmen working on the project share where it's at. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the repairs. Remy Fremont is the architect in charge of Notre Dame's structural framework. These pieces will be dismantled, brought to the cathedral, and reassembled in the choir area in just a few months. Today, part of the carpentry in the heart of the cathedral has been assembled. That is to say that it was the dress rehearsal before dismantling the wooden frame structure and assembling it for good in the cathedral. It's a crucial moment because it allows you to verify that everything has been perfectly constructed. The cathedral's nave is next and will be done with the same techniques and materials. As much as 400 tons of oak are going to be needed. The objective we had was to restore to its original condition the wooden frame structure that disappeared during the fire of April 15, 2019. The structure that we have restored today that we see rising today is the same wooden frame structure of the 13th century. We have exactly the same material, oak. 
Master framers and builders from across France and artisans from the U.S. and Argentina are part of the restoration effort. 61-year-old American timber framer Peter Henriksen was brought in from Minnesota. You know, when I'm here cutting joinery, you know, swinging them, swinging my mallet against a chisel, just think about there were medieval carpenters cutting this, basically the same joint 900 years ago. General Jean-Louis Georgelon is in charge of the whole reconstruction. He says the landmark won't be ready to reopen to the public in time for the Olympic Games next summer. Of course, I have to do everything I can to ensure that we don't have to stop the rebuilding during the Olympic Games. Georgelon said that the cathedral should reopen to the public for Christmas Mass in December 2024. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, a Paris museum is presenting an exhibition of Asian medicine. It features ancient methods of healing. Get that story after the break. Welcome back. We're taking you over to Paris, where a museum is presenting an exhibition on Asian medicine. It features a variety of art objects that reveal ancient methods of healing not only the body, but also the soul. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. It took three years for curator Aurélie Samuel to gather these artifacts in the Guimet Museum in Paris. More than 300 masterpieces, some of them very rare, are on public display taking visitors beyond the boundaries of time and space to discover the ancient methods of Asian medicine, a topic that often shows an understanding that's different from modern methods and invites introspection as it gives us a second look at the connection between humanity and nature and even reaches beyond our world. This is the cosmic man, a representation of the macrocosm and microcosm. It's a kind of condensation of the universe. We also found a universe in every part of the body of what we call the Purusha, the cosmic man. Not only in the Buddhist tradition, but also in ancient China, it was thought that the human body contains multiple worlds, environments and divinities, all of which find balance with each other. As is shown in this old Taoist painting, so it's quite interesting to think that the body has to blend into nature, but is itself a nature that has to be taken care of. It is said that the Yellow Emperor founded Chinese civilization and also created Chinese medicine in a treatise he wrote. This treatise is important because it essentially contains all the rules of Chinese medicine, the entire codification, and in particular, the idea of the meridians. There are 12 meridians in the human body, each of which corresponds to an organ. It's a network that we don't know how to reconcile with the classical framework of Western medicine. Some Asian cultures support the idea that the true origin of disease is spiritual. According to the exhibition, there is a close connection between spiritual beings and medicine. The earliest medical text shows that the Chinese believed that disease came from bad deeds committed by one's ancestors. And some of the healing techniques used a thousand years ago still find their place in medicine today. There's the treatise of Sun Simiao, who was a rather famous physician of the 11th century. And this treatise is actually still in use today. That is to say, most of the medicines that were used back then are used the same way today. Samuel says healing the body couldn't be achieved without the soul. 
and if your astrological sign is the rat, tiger or dragon, the treatment will be different. Each person, in fact, has a specific physical constitution that's also guided by the stars. This determines the type of treatment to be given, as well as the way in which one should behave towards oneself, the way in which one should pray, the way in which one should consider one's own body and the soul attached to one's body in order to achieve healing. The exhibition will be open until September 18th. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. A new study suggests that exercise for middle-aged people and over could keep you out of the hospital. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Finding time for exercise in your 40s and beyond can be challenging. Various responsibilities can get in the way and then by the time you're advanced you might be too scared to pick it back up again. But just 20 minutes of additional exercise could make a significant difference in the likelihood you find yourself hospitalized for several health conditions. A new study suggests that exercise doesn't just keep you fit, trimmer or give you a healthier heart, it might just keep you out of hospital. The study was published in JAMA Network Open. It features 82,000 British adults between the ages of 42 and 78. They wore wrist monitors to record physical activity. Researchers then looked at the relationship between activity and the odds of being hospitalized in the coming years. The findings suggested that middle-aged or older people would benefit from adding 20 minutes of daily exercise to their routine. They could reduce hospitalization risk by between 4 and 23% for conditions like pneumonia, stroke, diabetes complications and severe urinary tract infections, and more. After about seven years, more than 48,000 of the participants ended up in the hospital for various reasons. But more physically active people had lower risks when it came to some severe illnesses. Several studies show that physical activity can improve lung and heart health, insulin sensitivity and reduce inflammation. The study's results match up with what is typically recommended. At least 150 minutes of moderate exercise or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise per week. Moderate intensity is things like walking, biking on level ground or yard work. Vigorous activities are things like running, biking uphill or swimming laps. Adding 20 minutes to your day, whether it's going from 0 to 20 minutes or 20 to 40 minutes can help. The benefits appear to be dose dependent. The more you do, the lower the risk of a trip to the hospital. If you are severely overweight and never move, start by walking to the mailbox and increase as time goes on. You're never too old to exercise, so get a pair of sneakers and start moving. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.